So good afternoon, everyone. It's about, it's a little after one o'clock Eastern time, so let's get started. My name is Jerry Hahn. I'm the Corporate Relations Manager for Purdue University Sirius, and I'd like to welcome you to the very first session of the Sirius Summer Security Seminar Series. We're extremely pleased with the lineup we've got in place, and we hope you'll benefit from hearing from the cybersecurity experts and practitioners we've assembled for you at these weekly seminars. These sessions would not be possible without the support of the members of the Sirius Strategic Partnership Program. If you'd like to learn more about the program and how your organization could benefit, please contact info at sirius.purdue.edu. During the course of the program, if you have questions, uh, we ask you to keep your mics on mute if at all possible, but uh, perhaps enter a chat into the chat function or raise your hand with the raise hand function and we'll be watching those and we'll get your questions out right away. There will be time at the end for, for Q&A. So at this time, I'd like to turn this over to Sirius founder and Executive Director Emeritus, Professor Gene Spafford, who will introduce our speaker for today. Ms. Spaff. Well, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, I am really pleased to be able to introduce our speaker today. Uh, Sammy Sajari is somebody that I have known for decades uh, and has just uh, done incredible things in the field in all that time. He's been involved in pretty much every aspect of system design and security from early stages of design through development, deployment, operations, uh, engineering. Uh, he's been involved with uh, national policy, with advanced research and program management uh, in a number of places. He's worked with uh, DARPA on uh, uh, projects and at the National Security Agency. Currently, he's a consultant, works with uh, many players in uh, corporate and national security, critical infrastructure, and, and other important areas. Uh, and he teaches cybersecurity at Johns Hopkins uh, University. I also want to mention here that uh, his background in secure engineering is reflected in a book that uh, was published, I think it was last year, uh, called Engineering Trustworthy Systems, Get Cybersecurity Design Right the First Time. And uh, I, I can tell you from my personal reading of this book, it is an excellent coverage of the field. Yeah, I would say this is one of the top two or three books that anyone doing security design should read. And so I recommend that you check that out after listening to Sammy do his presentation today. So without further ado, Sammy, welcome. Thank you, I appreciate it. All right, so I think I need the sharing baton. Uh, let's see, look, oh, I got it. One second, let me get that up here. Okay, so you should see the title slide. Uh, can somebody just confirm that they see it? Yes. Super. Okay, very good. So, as Bass said with his very generous introduction, um, I'm here to talk about cybersecurity key principles and uh, discuss a principled approach to cybersecurity engineering as, as a discipline. All right, so what I've done is I've, I've taken the 250 or so uh, principles from the, the book engineering trustworthy systems that SPAF talked about. And um, I boiled them down in sort of the 10 most fundamental ones because we have an hour. 
uh, and to discuss those and how they uh, help us bring this to a discipline, an engineering discipline. So my, my goal is to bring, to, to let the attendees take a step backwards, uh, take a step back, I mean, in, in looking at the big picture of the principles of cybersecurity uh, design and uh, see how we can approach this. Um, and we'd like to move cybersecurity to this, this engineering discipline versus sort of the ad hoc series of things that it's been, all of which are important, but um, we'd like to move it further towards system engineering. Just as a point of background, I know that many of you people here know this, but I just have to make sure everybody knows the three pillars of cybersecurity, confidentiality, where the data uh, lies in the, uh, sort of the data value lies in the secrecy of the data, uh, integrity, ensuring the data and the system are not changed maliciously, and availability, ensuring continued access to the resources of the system. These are often known by CIA, uh, the acronym, just if you need a mnemonic, mnemonic, mnemonic to remember it. Um, okay, so that's just a quick introduction. So we're going to get to the first principle first. Cybersecurity's goal is to optimize mission effectiveness. Cybersecurity's goal is never an end unto itself. It's a very important idea um, that really has changed the way I look at the field over the last three and a half decades or so. Um, and we'll talk about exactly what it means. And I, by the way, I should say that these, these references at the bottom, 03.01, is not a biblical reference. Um, it's a reference to the engineering trustworthy system. So that means chapter three, the first principle in chapter three, just in case anybody wants to go look it up and learn more about it. So they're indexed. So let's talk about what this means. It sounds kind of superficial, but, but what is this? What are the implications of this? So let's look at that. So all systems have some primary mission, right? Their, their, their mission might be to sell widgets, whatever widgets are, right? Manage money, control chemical plants, manufacture parts, um, connect people together like Facebook or defend a country, right? It doesn't really matter what their mission is, but it just matters that they have one. Um, and, and security is typically not their mission. Security is a property that they're seeking of their system, and therefore it's an, it's an aspect, right? And it's, it's, it, that property needs to be engineered into the mission system, um, not the other way around. So, so the systems generate some mission value, right, which is, which is affected by the probability of failure, right? So if my, let's say I'm in, um, I've got uh, something that does retail sales online, uh, that value is generated by people that be able to very easily order stuff, right? One click, some, sometimes, some people call that click joy, right? One click, I get my stuff the next day, right? The Amazon kind of model. So, um, so if that fails, I lose revenue directly. Um, you know, if I'm trying to defend a country and I, my radar goes out um, and somebody's like near my border, uh, that, that failure is a big deal. So whatever I'm doing, failure is an issue. And so um, cybersecurity can lend to failure, right, due to an explicit intentional attack. Um, so the purpose of, of the cybersecurity design is to reduce the probability of failure from cyber attack so as to maximize mission effectiveness. The idea is not to do whatever you can think of, 
um, whatever somebody, whatever the most recent salesman of a cybersecurity widget tells you you need, uh, whatever talismans you need to sprinkle over the system, spend whatever you spent last year, none of that is a particularly good way of engineering cybersecurity. You really need to think about this from the perspective of maximizing mission success, which means you can't spend all of your budget budgeted for mission for cybersecurity, for example, because then you have no mission left, or degrade performance to the point where mission doesn't work. So this is a very practical um, viewpoint. And what I have found, even though it sounds like a platitude, it really alters the role of the cybersecurity engineer um, into a collaborative role with management as opposed to an adversarial role so that the engineer is trying to help the manager optimize mission. So, for example, if my mission is to get a spacecraft to Europa and take a look around to see if there's life under the ice, um, cyber, cyber attacks could thwart that mission. Uh, I don't want to spend all of my money, right? I need to spend the money to get the science back from Europa, but, um, you know, I, I have to make sure that I get there, right? Because if somebody can scuttle the spacecraft before it gets there, I can do no science whatsoever. So it's part of mission. It's not a separate thing. It's part of mission, just like reliability is a part of mission, cybersecurity is a part of mission. All right. So this is just a pretty picture of what I said, which is that, Cybersecurity has um, is part of this much larger trade-off space, and you know I show it in three dimensions. It's actually 15 dimensions, but I, I have trouble drawing 15 dimensions. Probably like 100 dimensions actually. Um, but but there's functionality, right? What what is the system trying to accomplish, right? Am I am I trying to sell a lot of widgets? Okay, that's the functionality. Uh, performance. How quickly do I need to perform this? And then we have confidentiality, integrity, availability, security on this axis. And what you really would like to do in engineering is figure out where you want to be in this space. So you, whatever you do as a cybersecurity engineer, you end up somewhere in this space. Uh, you just may not know where, and you may not have had any control over it, right? So, so maybe you're here or here or, or there. How do you know? Um, we'd like to be able to know, and in fact, not only do we want to know, let's say we want to be at this point number one, but we want to be able to reconfigure the system under different circumstances so I can move from number one to number two. And how do I know? How do I know how to do that? How do I know under what circumstances I should change that? And we'll talk about the operation of cybersecurity um, from a dynamic control perspective uh, later on as another principle. But I'd like to design my system to have this as an explicit trade-off. All right, so principle number two. I know this is kind of a breakneck speed, but the whole point of this is to stay at 50,000 feet so that you can see the big picture, you know, the curvature of the earth of cybersecurity, if you will. So principle number two is that cybersecurity is about understanding and mitigating cyber attack risk. That's what we need to understand. So you have to understand risk in order to understand how to mitigate that risk. So where does it come from? So risk is the primary metric of cybersecurity. Right? So understanding the nature and source of that risk is key to applying and advancing the discipline. So um, risk management, risk assessment um, is key to, to cybersecurity engineering. You cannot do engineering without understanding risk doesn't necessarily mean you have to be an expert in a particular methodology, but you really need to understand where risk comes from, and, and broadly speaking, and specifically in a given system design. 
So risk measurement is foundational to improving cybersecurity. And again, what you see in braces here is a reference to another principle that supports this higher level principle, chapter 17, principle number four in that chapter. All right, so cybersecurity risk um, is a matter of two things, like all risks. It's the probability of cyber attacks occurring for a particular bad outcome times the potential damages that result um, if that outcome occurs. And we develop a series of bad outcomes, which we won't talk about today, in things called attack trees, right, which are a lot like fault trees if you happen to be a from, uh, reliability engineer. So that's what cybersecurity risk is. And it sounds simple, right? You just have to take the probability of the attack times the, the, the bad stuff that's going to happen if the attack occurs, and voila, you have the risk. Well, both of those are very hard to estimate. Um, and so it's not as simple as that, but in the, in the very, very bottom line, it is as simple as that. We just have to find ways to do that effectively in a quantified way, um, at least in a qualified way, but I think we should go for quantified ways, which of course is somewhat controversial. And we can talk about that at the end if you'd like. So, um, so, we, so we're estimating both the quantity is challenging, but it's possible. And so the rationale here of why we need this metric is that an engineering discipline, if it's going to be a discipline, requires a metric to do four things. You, you need to be able to characterize the nature of the risk, right? Where is it? How much of it is it? How much is this, is this uh, design? How risky is this design? What's my residual risk? Where does it come from? Number two, you need to be able to evaluate a given system. Um, number three, you need to be able to predict that system's performance from a risk perspective under different kinds of conditions, under different kinds of loads. You have to have a theory to do that. You have to have a metric to do that. And lastly, uh, we have to compare. Is system A more secure than system B? If I'm considering three different design alternatives, um, is C better than B? Is B better than A? How do I know? Um, you can't know that without a metric. And so a number of people in the field will say, well, metrics are so hard, let's just not do it. Well, okay, I guess that's one approach, right? But the reality is you can't make progress without a metric. And even if we have rough metrics, um, uncertain, with high uncertainty intervals at the beginning, eventually if we put our focus and energy on it, we can do better and uh, continue the discussion and debate on metrics and make them better over time if we want to turn this into a discipline, which at least I do, and I think a number of other people do as well. So this is just a picture of that, um, of the notion of a metric here. What you see is cybersecurity in a standard uh, system engineering uh, lifecycle requirements analysis design. But then you have this risk assessment evaluation. So given this design, how much risk is there? Um, uh, is that too much, not enough? Uh, does it meet my threshold of, for risk? Um, just like, for example, reliability, the answer is yes or no. If, um, if it's no, I want some design feedback. Well, I need to be able to look at things like attack trees and analyses of where the risk comes from in order to decide what to change in the design so that I can redesign the system and iterate this until I get to meet my risk assessment, um, sorry, my risk level threshold for the system I'm trying to design. And again, I would say there's high uncertainty intervals, which is just part of engineering, is to manage those uncertainty intervals by uh, things like um, um, what we do in bridge development, right, is we just multiply the risk threshold by three to account for the uncertainty of, of where the bridge failure is going to happen in the, in the metal. 
So, um, so there are ways of handling uncertainty. So there's not a showstopper, and there are ways of making those uncertainties smaller over time as we gain knowledge. Okay. So now we are at uh, principle number three. Theories of security come from theories of insecurity. What does that mean? So this is one of the most fundamental principles um, that uh, one of my mentors um, by the name of Rick Proto said to me at one point, which I did not understand at all at the time. It made no sense to me. So let's talk about it. Um, and in fact, this is one of these principles that kind of uh, spirals over time. Like in my first decade of my career, I understood it at one level. In the second decade, I understood it at a deeper level. In the third decade, I understood it at a much deeper level. I think all of these principles have that property all good principles should, that as you understand more, you understand the principle more deeply and how to apply it more deeply. So what does this mean? Um, the, this is one of the most important yet subtle aspects of, of cybersecurity engineering. It's, it's about how to think about the problem and the, the underlying attitude that feeds insights into cybersecurity, whatever stage you're at, whether you're in the design stage or whether you're a coder, whether you're a tester or whether you are a um, operations guy or a maintenance person, it affects your attitude. And that's why it's so fundamental. Um, so just as failure motivates and informs dependability principles or reliability principles, cyber attack motivates and informs cybersecurity principles. So what Rick would say is if you have no idea how to attack a system at all, you have no business designing anything that defends the system because you have no idea how security, uh, how insecurity works. So this is what he means when he says the principles of, of security come from principles of insecurity. Just like if you don't know how systems fail, you cannot design reliability mechanisms because you don't know the ways they fail. The same thing is true about cyber attacks. So you must educate yourself on the panoply of kinds of attacks, the way that they work, the way that they're stopped. So, um, these, this leads to approaches to defend systems during the design and operation, um, as we said. So the rationale here is, is how do you prevent an attack without knowing the success mechanism of the attack? If it's a virus that's spreading in device drivers and you didn't know that viruses could infect device drivers, well, you're never going to find it, right, because you didn't know the viruses can operate at the device driver level. Um, how, how can you possibly detect an, an attack without knowing in what parts of the system um, state space it's gonna manifest. You can't just say, well, here's all the sensors I have um, uh, and let's just see if it, if it like triggers one of those. Well, it may never trigger one of those. And in fact, attackers will design their attacks to not trigger the sensors of any uh, detection systems that are out there today, at least commercial ones. And so they know what those the thresholds are, so you should too. And you should know where in the state space an attack would manifest. So here's uh, seven classes, two forces, yeah, seven classes of attacks that we often consider. So this is, this is out of what something's called the big book of attacks. And this is just an accounting system to remind us as designers uh, the kinds of attacks that we consider to open up the aperture of our thinking, right? So computer network attacks, most of us in cybersecurity think of, right? They're the standard things you read about in the literature. Um, many of us think of lifecycle attacks, which are much more pernicious kind of attacks of, of adversaries getting into the lifecycle 
the development process of cybersecurity systems um, during the integrations or the operations of the maintenance part and introduce bugs in that process. Uh, we'll talk, I think, a couple bit more about that. Um, that's expanding the aperture a little bit more. Um, and then you expand a bit more with something called signals intelligence, right, which is the, uh, the ability to break cryptographic algorithms like AES or, you know, God forbid somebody still using DES or a data encryption standard. Um, so, you know, just because you used encryption doesn't mean you used it well, doesn't mean the algorithm was perfect, doesn't mean somebody doesn't have a way to break it. Human intelligence, right, insider attacks, people recruiting people inside your organization or somebody recruiting themselves because they have an ideological issue or a financial problem or romantic problems, whatever problem they have, right, um, insider attacks uh, are a real thing. Social engineering. Um, I don't believe I've ever seen a case where a red team uh, using social engineering has not succeeded. This is human to human, right? Call somebody up and go, oh, my God, I'm going to lose my job if you don't tell me your password to the system because I need to debug something and fix it for you so that you don't lose all your data or something. I mean, that wasn't nearly as plausible as they are, right? But um, they come up with some plausible thing. You know, the phishing attack is sort of an example or a subcase of social engineering. Um, there are much more sophisticated ones uh, as well. Electronics warfare, jamming communications, kinetic attacks, right? Which is really weird to say this in the context of cyber, but if I throw a pipe bomb in a server room um, and that triggers a failure, let's say, in a power grid, because the control systems don't know how to handle the surge resulting from that. It's kind of like a control problem that was started through a kinetic attack, but really is a cyber control problem. So um, we don't exclude kinetic attacks as a part of a bigger picture of a cyber attack. Okay, so this, this, the point of this slide is just to open up your aperture, have your own slide, or have your own big book of attacks, just to remind yourself to have the wider aperture. Principle number four. Cyberspace espionage, sabotage, and influence are the goals underlying cyber attack. Prepare for all three. So lots of people kind of get lost in the weeds of uh, the attack of the day, right? Um, you know, cool new virus, cool new worm, um, cool new thing of black hat. Uh, yeah, we really should know all of those, and we should be students of all those and read all those papers. That's fantastic. But we should take a step back and understand strategically what adversaries and the cyber attackers are trying to accomplish. And basically, it's three things. They want to steal stuff, right, espionage. Uh, they want to break stuff, sabotage, right, like take out the power grid of, like, the United States, for example. Um, or they want to influence, right, and that's becoming even more interesting, right, um, election 2016, for example, um, Cambridge Analytics, um, the ability to to uh, target and attack the way people think uh, is an incredibly uh, powerful technique and cyberspace uh, makes that much, much more efficient and with much better real-time feedback. Um, to take, it's a, it's a uh, attack that's been around for millennia, right? Uh, just in terms of rumors, you know, spreading rumors about people was a way 2000 years ago to get rid of somebody, a competitor in a village. Um, now we use it for, you know, changing election outcomes. So uh, this, this kind of uh, uh, strategic goal that adversaries have has been there for a while, but it's going to increase with time as we depend more heavily on cyberspace to do things like spread news, uh, spread opinions, social media is becoming more and more 
prevalent as a means of communicating and changing ideas and perceptions. So uh, influence ops is huge and it's going to get much, much bigger. So pay close attention to how cybersecurity and information operations relate to one another. Okay. So um, understanding adversaries equals understanding their motivations and their strategic goals. So, um, so we talked about these three. I think I, there's nothing else I really want to say about these three. Yeah, I think we pretty much did them. So, um, but knowing the adversary's value system, what do they value? Right? They don't have the exact same value system that we have. So let's just take a China and a Russia because I kind of deal on that level with many of the clients that I work with. So what, what do they want? Um, what kind of investments are they going to make? What are their targets going to be? What are their behaviors to be uh, look like? Are they risk averse? Um, are, the, uh, will, will, are they dissuaded by being discovered? Many times not. Many times they'll use cutouts in order to prevent uh, blowback on them, even diplomatic blowback of, please don't do that again, which is about as harsh as we get so far in cybersecurity. I'm exaggerating slightly, but not much. Okay, so um, that's that. All right, so let's go on to principle uh, number five, which is assume your adversaries know your mission and your cybersecurity system better than we do. Um, this is a hard one um, to get people to realize. Uh, oftentimes people hide in the notion of, well, nobody really understands our system. It's very complex. We barely understand it, so the adversary can't possibly understand it. They can't figure out what to do to control it. Um, that is complete and utter fantasy. And you might think that's absurd, but I cannot tell you the number of times I have had mission owners tell me that. Um, as recently, right, as well as 20, 30 years ago uh, when I began practicing. So, um, so this continues to be a, a very, very serious miscalculation. So um, sometimes it's because my system is secret. Um, so that's great. Secrecy is fleeting, right? Uh, never depend on secrecy more than you absolutely have to. That doesn't mean you should advertise, for example, the thresholds for your intrusion detection system for your system and post them on the internet. But don't rely on that. Um, think about varying them so that the adversary doesn't know what they're assuming that they're going to discover your parameters. This uh, true, this secrecy uh, being tenuous is true of the data but applies even more strongly to the system itself. You cannot keep your algorithms secret. You cannot keep the mechanism by which you operate completely secret. Um, you know, maybe you can keep a cryptographic key secret, some very small bits of data secret, but, um, but don't count on anything much beyond that being secret. And don't count on that and be secret for sure. That's also a probability that somebody will actually accidentally spill their cryptographic key or much worse, you know, the signing key, right, for, for public keys, which would be horrible. Um, so don't make rash and unfounded assumptions, right? It's safer to assume that the adversaries know as much as the designers did, and sometimes they know more. Why? Because the designers have these very awesome pictures up on their wall of what, how they designed the network, how they designed the system, and it's beautiful. Um, designers have very beautiful ideas, right, but then implementers get to it and make some compromises that maybe, you know, they didn't tell the designer about, um, some shortcuts, just to make this a little bit faster. Um, 
we even have like, you know, during operations time, people doing weird things like, hey, you know, if I just if I just bypass this firewall with this wireless connection here, I can just I can get this data out ten times faster than I was before. I'm just gonna do this for fifteen minutes. Who's gonna attack me with an internet unprotected internet connection for just fifteen minutes? Lots of people are, right? But most people are too naive, most non-security experts are too naive to understand that. So adversaries are scanning the systems real time to understand what's really there versus what was designed. That's why I say that they have a better understanding than the actual designers of how the system really is working versus how it was designed to work. Beyond assuming that the adversary knows your system, you have to assume that they've co-opted a part of your system sometime during the life cycle. Like maybe they have control over a piece of software running in your network. It's sort of like assuming you've got a human insider, but in this case, it's a piece of software that's operating on behalf of an adversary. Um, now you can't assume that they own every piece of your system because at that point there's not much you can do. But if you, own, if you assume they, they might get a toehold somewhere, it tells you that you have to look inside of the network boundary for activity that is malicious. It tells you that you have to put up least privilege uh, mechanisms to say, you know, why should that piece of software that calculates the bowling scores for the week, why should that have access to any data beyond the bowling score Excel spreadsheet? Um, because, you know, maybe it's going to propagate, right? So minimize, um, this is least privilege concept, it's not one of the 10 here, but it's implicit in all of them. So, um, so rationale here is that many subversion opportunities exist during the system's life cycle. So assume the adversary not only knows your system, but inside your system, and things can be introduced in design, build, test, deployment, maintenance, any phase of the design can, has been, has been demonstrated, and has been demonstrably found to be very difficult to find when it's introduced in experiments. Okay. So this is just a look at a particular kind of life cycle picture of, um, of, uh, of software compiling, right? So I, I have a source editor, right? I edit my source, I compile it. I then send it to a linker and then I load it. A loader that kind of changes memory addressing so that's appropriate for where it gets loaded. Each one of these things is a place where an adversary can gain control. Most people don't think about adversaries um, putting code into a compiler and adjusting um, what the object code or executable code looks like, um, but it's never in the source. You never see it. And so it's very difficult to find such things. There's a great paper written on this topic I think it's on trusty and trust. I always get that title slightly wrong, but somebody will correct me. But um, but it's a great it's a great paper uh, out there uh, about how to how to hook a compiler um, to put attacks into the executables that nobody will ever find, or at least very few people will find unless they're looking exactly for it. So um, just one example of a piece of a lifecycle and the kinds of opportunities most people don't even know that linkers and loaders exist. Right? Uh, they barely know that compilers exist. They just hit run, right? And a compiler operates in the background. So we've sort of trained our new generation of software coders not even to know about the lower level pieces. We've made it transparent, which is a good thing, but we've made it transparent, which is, which is a bad thing from a cybersecurity perspective. All right, principle six. 
So we talked about the C, I, and N, confidentiality, integrity, and availability. Uh, we Most people don't quite understand that um, that's probably the wrong ordering for those acronyms, but it's, you know, it's easy because everybody knows what the CIA is, right? So um, it's a good mnemonic, but really I is the first letter in CIA, or it should be the first letter because it is the most foundational, uh, the most foundational properties. Without integrity, no other cybersecurity properties matter. But why do I say that? Well, so historically, the Defense Department um, was most concerned in sort of a time-sharing environment about confidentiality, right? Having secret information leak from one um, user to another, who from a user is clear to a user is not clear. That was the original problem back in the late 60s, early 70s. Lots of great papers written about that topic. And that bias has created a skew in the perspective of cybersecurity engineers to be confidentiality focused. But the reality is that the most important property is integrity. It has primacy. And this is reflected in a concept called reference monitor, which unfortunately seems to have lost its way in modern. I'm sure, I'm sure not at Purdue, right? But, um, but in many course curriculums, nobody's heard of reference monitors. Uh, I had a, just did a graduate level course at Johns Hopkins and nobody had heard of a reference monitor. I was shocked. They had all been through an entire course on cybersecurity. Right, so, so reference monitors merely say if you have security critical code, it's gotta be demonstrably correct, uh, not bypassable, meaning somebody can't go around it to access the critical resource, and it must be tamper-proof or tamper-resistant so that somebody can't mess with it uh, without authorization. So if these three properties don't hold, you have nothing because I as an adversary can bypass uh, or I can get into the life cycle and tamper with it, right? And it can be it, whatever code you, you had, doesn't matter because now I can change it to be my code. And so whatever properties you worked very, very hard to achieve aren't achieved anymore because I get controlled through a system integrity attack. All right, number seven. I'm trying to get, you know, leave enough time at the end for lots of questions. So um, hopefully I'm not going too fast for you, but I'm trying to give you the, again the big picture. So number seven, a cyber attacker's priority target is the cybersecurity system. Again, this is obvious when you hear it said, but it's not obvious in the practice of cybersecurity engineering that I see. So what's going on, right? So um, this criticality of the cybersecurity system is it's almost a corollary from the primacy of integrity principle that we just talked about. So to attack the mission system, whatever it is, let's say a banking system, right? Somebody wants a hundred million dollars. Um, that's good motivation, right? So, but your first thing you have to do in order to attack that mission system, the banking system, is to disable any security controls that are between you and the hundred million dollars. Um, you need to clear the, the adversary needs to clear their path from defense. Seems obvious, right? Get the if you're in a physical world, right? You know, um, get through the lock, get through the barbed wire, whatever it is you're trying to get through. So this includes the security controls that defend the security system, right? So um, the security systems themselves have to be secured. Um, and the argument for the security of those security systems is rarely made explicitly and is rarely very good, at least that I've seen. 
So um, we have to be careful to make sure we understand the security system is itself a system that needs protection and will be the primary target of the adversary, so we, we should watch it carefully. So cybersecurity subsystem protects the mission. Um, we should also by, also, by watching it carefully, even attempts of attacking the cybersecurity subsystem are often harbingers of attacks on the mission system. So if we see people trying to pick at the cybersecurity system, we should be very worried, right? Because it means somebody really knows what they're doing. So, you know, there are the script kitties out there that just, you know, unleash standard attack scripts and see what happens. Professionals go after the cybersecurity system first. Those are the people you need to worry about. Script kitties are annoying. Um, and they can certainly do thousands of dollars, maybe hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of damage, but they probably can't do hundreds of billions of dollars worth of damage. So um, worry about the professional. They go after um, the cybersecurity system first. And as an example, they almost always go after the audit log, logs first so that they can erase, make sure that they can erase the trail of their having been there so that you don't know that they stole the stuff or influenced the data or destroyed its integrity or suddenly changed it to influence your decisions. Okay, number eight. Defense in depth without defense in breadth is useless. Breadth without depth is weak. So we have everybody, or most people have heard this term defense in depth. Um, I've never heard it defined well. I've never heard it applied well. So um, it's vaguely defined as, as layering cyber security approaches, right? Uh, lots of different kinds of things, uh, detection and firewalls and virus stuff. And okay, you know, we need all those things, right? And includes people, technology, procedures, all that stuff. Um, but we, if we're going to design, if we're going to do engineering as a discipline, cybersecurity engineering as a discipline, we need some precision to these principles, right, to be useful to the design process. When we say layer, layer how? With respect to what? Um, well, with respect to the cyber attack space covering the gamut of possible attack classes. That's why I presented the big book of attacks, right, seven classes, right? So. So maybe you're good on all things except for a SIGINT attack, right? A cryptoanalytic attack. Oh, um, yeah, forgot that one, right? So um, what are we doing about that? What if they're successfully able to break the crypto? What do we do then? What, what, so what, where's depth there? So you have to understand the entire breadth of the attack space. Mechanisms, cybersecurity mechanisms useful against one attack class are completely useful for another. So just because you have a firewall and an intrusion detection system does not mean you have two layers of defense. It looks like it on paper. It's just not true with respect to all attack classes. It is true with respect to some attack classes. So therefore, we need this companion principle, which is the defense in breadth, which is the breadth of the attack space. Um, because we don't want the adversary to simply move to an alternative attack. Um, we want to we want to cover the entire space and we want to cover it multiply. So ideally, the depth that we achieve uh, will cause the adversary equal difficulty, no matter how he comes at the system. For all avenues of attack, for all attack classes, we'd love to for be the case that um, it's the same cost and the same risk threshold, and so it's an even fence, right? The height of the fence is the same everywhere. It's hard to achieve. But it's certainly an important goal of cybersecurity because if one of my slats of my fence are incredibly low 
and we don't even know that flat is there because we haven't mapped our fence and we don't know that it's low, they're going to go after that one, right? They're going to survey if we don't survey, and they're going to find that flat. And so all the investment we made to make other slats in the fence really, really high, total waste of time because we'd left um, some slats open or worse yet, you know, the gate open. So this is a pretty picture of that, right? So, so each dot in this, this amoeba diagram is an attack, a different kind of an attack. And each purple area is a, a defense mechanism, right? So, so maybe this is the firewall, right? It covers these kinds of attacks. It covers lots of attacks. Firewalls are great. Um, but, you know, I want to I wanna cover this attack, which seems particularly bad if this is an abstraction, right? So I'm not specifically telling you what this red dot is. But, um, you know, maybe I want to cover that with a different mechanism as well, right? And maybe this one is super bad, so I want to cover it with a third mechanism. So I need to understand. So, so this dot here has a defense in depth of three. This one has a defense in depth of one. Even though I have multiple mechanisms, you know, I've got like, I don't know, 12, 15 mechanisms here, they don't equally give me depth everywhere for all attacks. I need to understand what this map is. I need to be able to decide what this map looks like in order to decide whether I have really, truly effective defense in depth, right, through a look at the breadth. And this is another way, this is a flat analogy, which I've kind of given you, which is oftentimes the fences we draw, the cybersecurity fences that we draw around our systems look more like this than this back here, right? So we've got some very stupid gate that's open or some slat that's really, really low. The adversary is not so nice to us that they'll go, oh, let's, let's take this flat here. Like, let's say, I don't know, AES, right? Let's, let's try to break AES, right? Meanwhile, right, you know, there, there's a way to get the data in the clear because, um, you know, we send it through a different channel in the clear or it's just sitting out there open on a server somewhere. So I'll get it through that slide. So we need to be careful to map this and understand what it looks like and make sure we understand the full width of that fence. We need to understand that we've got preventative mechanisms, detection mechanisms, and tolerance mechanisms. So um, keep the whole breadth of depth in mind. All right, number nine. Failure to plan for cybersecurity failure guarantees catastrophic failure. Um, again, we, we often assume cybersecurity systems um, are amazingly perfect because we design them. We're cybersecurity engineers and we know what we're doing. So system failures are inevitable. No matter how good you are, they are inevitable. So pretending otherwise is catastrophic. And this applies to mission systems as well as cybersecurity systems that protect them. Cybersecurity systems, like all systems, are subject to failure. Engineers must understand how their systems can fail. Again, their cybersecurity, the subsystems, how they fail, when they fail, why they fail. The failure could be in the underlying hardware. The microprocessors can fail. The internal buses can fail. What, there are internal buses? Yes, right, there are internal buses, right, that are pieces of hardware that fail. Um, other systems, or the access control on the, the memory management could fail. Oh my God, that would be horrible. Other systems on which they depend, the network, Memory can fail, right? Even though memory is fairly reliable, it still fails regularly. Um, external storage can fail. Um, it can intentionally fail, it can accidentally fail, or it can accidentally fail and that accidental failure can be intentionally exploited. It happens all the time. So a student of cybersecurity is a student of failure and a student of dependability. Security requires reliability, reliability requires security. 
very, very important principle. If you're a cybersecurity engineer and you do not have an understanding of reliability engineer, go educate yourself, find a course, find a book. It's important. Cybersecurity mechanisms not endowed, uh, oh, so the last point here is that cybersecurity mechanisms are not endowed with non-failure magical powers, right? We assume that they are for some odd reason and we don't do the failure analysis on cybersecurity subsystems, the what ifs, and ensure that we catch, adapt, tolerate the failures. So they're subject to the same failures that happen in the engineering V, the engineering V being sort of design, build, test, um, that's the standard engineering V if you haven't heard that term. And oftentimes security code is much more complex than standard software because it's handling complex timing issues and hardware control. So not only is it subject to the same failures, it's probably going to fail even worse and more often because of the complexity of the code. So, um, so failure analysis, important. Last principle is cybersecurity strategy and tactics knowledge comes from deeply analyzing cyber attack encounters. Right, so we need to know how to operate our cybersecurity systems. Remember how we talked about how you could move in the space right, from one part to another part? Um, that's by changing parameters, right? So good cybersecurity operations, figuring out how to change the parameters of the system in response to a situation is as important as a good design. If you don't know what to do when you're under attack, the designs aren't that great, right? Uh, because the attacker will get through in some way. So what are the optimal settings of all the various cybersecurity mechanisms that you have, right? A firewall can have, you know, a trillion different rules, trillion different combinations. Which ones do you need to put in there? Which ones do you need to change when you're under attack? How do you know? So it depends on the variations in the mission, system environment, attack status. Um, the settings are really the trade-off space for addressing the entire spectrums of attack because there's no optimal setting statically for all possible cyber attack scenarios. You must be able to dynamically adapt. You must, must be able to do control, dynamic control, which is control theory. So that leads to a complex control feedback system and you need to be able to control and the control feedback system. You need to apply the principles of control theory and understand how not to over control or under control or create um, oscillation in your system. So the knowledge to set the parameters of your cybersecurity system and maneuver in this space um, involves analyzing cyber attack encounters, both real ones and simulated ones. Simulated ones being like with a red team operating with you uh, on your systems and on your neighbor's systems. Um, you should look to theory like game theory, which needs extension to deal with cyberspace and control theory. And you need, um, you need to look at uh, both strategic knowledge acquisition and tactical acquisition. So strategic knowledge is how do I change my future systems design so that this doesn't happen to me again? Whereas tactical knowledge is given this kind of a situation, how do I dynamically change my configuration to better deal with it more quickly, more effectively? Those are the kinds of, of, of research as well as engineering data we need to collect in order to operate our system. And so finally, you know, when we do this kind of analysis, I, I like to talk about the uh, five whys analysis done by um, the uh, National Transportation Safety Board when an airline accident happens, right? So this is also called uh, root cause analysis, right? So in this particular example, we have 
a fatal airplane crash, right? And uh, the proximal cause of the people's death is the airplane hit the ground going really, really fast. Um, that's mildly interesting, but not particularly, right? That we don't understand that. But why did that happen? Well, it ran out of fuel. But why did that happen, right? Well, because the fuel service guy read pounds instead of gallons. This actually happened. Um, well, why is that? Because the request form is extremely unclear in, you know, six-point font with the two boxes right next to each other, right? So you have to look at all of this kind of failure. Every time a cybersecurity event happens to you or anywhere, we need to start learning as a community to do an NTSB five whys analysis. Five whys meaning, well, this is why, but why did that, why did that happen? Well, here's the second level of why, the third, the fourth, the fifth, right? That's getting much, much back to the root cause, right, which is five whys. And not only do you need to look at the, the reasons this happened, right, this is just the aircraft analogy, obviously, is you also need to look at the implications of improving the systems you're worried about. In this case, aircraft design, pilot training, air traffic control, cockpit design, same thing for cybersecurity. How do we improve detection, prevention techniques? How do we improve operator um, operations? What reconfigurations? There are all sorts of categories of knowledge that we can milk out of these events that we are not doing, right? And we need to be able to figure out how to do that and do it consistently. Most organizations bury their attacks, do very little analysis, and just go, whew, when it's over, and they just get hit again with the same kind of attack. All right. So I'm going to end there just to leave us 10 minutes for questions because the questions are way more interesting to me anyway. So um, I'll open it up. And I guess, uh, Jerry, are you, are you moderating? I'm, I'm not quite sure. Are people asking via text or what are we doing at this point? Uh, yes, sir. We're, we're trying to keep track of it. First of all, let me say thank you, Sammy, for delivering that presentation today. We really appreciate your, your time and effort and, and, uh, and uh, the information you, you've provided. Um, I've been watching. I see that there was a um, there was a Q and A put out uh, with strictly just said reflections on trusting trust. I'm not sure if that was referencing uh, to a white paper or if that was a uh, yes. if it was a question. So Chris Hartley, if you're if you're uh, if you can turn your mic on, or maybe if Michael, you could turn on uh, Chris's uh, microphone. If there's a question around that, that'd be great. I do not see any other uh, hands raised or comments, but if you do have a question. Please send me something in a chat or uh, put it on the Q&A section on the, on the screen and we'll, we'll, we'll try to get those answered in the next few minutes. Mike, could you turn on Chris Clifton's microphone, please? Yep, just a second, working on. Looks like he maybe is live now. No, not yet. Okay. I seem to be unmuted now. There you go. Uh, yeah. I had a question, you know, when you brought up 10, where you really talked about, uh, you know, we need to investigate and, and look at how we're doing things relative to the attacks. But, you know, thinking back to your first thing was talking about, almost sounded like that approach of, 
you know, basing our defenses on the attacks or, or basing is, is cyber, addressing cyber insecurity rather than cyber security. Uh, are, is, is there a conflict there or, you know, is it, you know, how do, how do those issues relate? Yeah, it's a great question. Thank you. Um, so my viewpoint is that um, this kind of gets to top down versus bottom up, right? And so um, you really, really need to understand how failures happen to do, you know, failure engineering. You need to understand how attacks succeed in order to do cybersecurity engineering. And so understanding attacks, as in number 10, informs how to do the top down design, right? So. So they're related, top down and bottom up together give you insight into how to do good security engineering. Danny, this is Jimmy again. I have a, I have a um, question here that asks, can you please define the control theory? Ah, okay, very good. So um, control theory, um, if you're an electrical engineer, you probably understand this, right? So control theory is um, how to apply changes to a system to cause it to get to some goal state um, that you want. So for example, if you want to balance a broom on your hand, right, and the broom starts to fall to the left, right, you may go to the left a little bit, move your hand to the left. But if you move it too far, the, the broom's going to fall, right? And so you have to do these system inputs, like moving your hand left to right, back and forth. Uh, but you have to do them in a way that doesn't cause the broom to fall or to enter into some oscillation that will then cause the broom to fall. So you have to examine the, the difference between the goal state and the present state and decide what inputs to make into the system to bring you closer to that goal state. That's the essence of control theory um, that applies in multiple engineering disciplines. It's very worthwhile taking a course in control theory if you're a cybersecurity engineer. Great, thanks, Sammy. Um, Michael, can you unmute Joe Weiss's line? Hey, Joe, looks like you're live if you have a question. Yeah, it was really more of a comment, but Sammy, thanks for saying that thing you just did about uh, controls. Um, I just wanted to mention a lot of what was presented was really IT oriented. And there's a number of things that for control systems would be different. And the one point I wanted to get across that you mentioned, you were talking about kinetic attacks for cyber effects, what I work about, what I worry about, are cyber effects that cause kinetic problems. It's the flip, which are things like, for example, the Aurora vulnerability, where you use cyber to cause kinetic damage. Absolutely, yeah. We, you, Joe, you know, you you know that you and I agree emphatically on these points, yeah. right? So. So what, one of the points here is that, for example, beyond Aurora, which is the destruction of a, uh, a power generator using a cyber attack, is you could potentially destroy uh, transformers, major transformers, major generators across the country and bring power grid down. So um, when I talk about kinetic effects having cyber, uh, cyber consequences, it's to then have um, larger consequences, which then have kinetic consequences. So I definitely include kinetic consequences as part of the damages that are possible and the risks um, that cyber attacks can create. Thanks. 
But thank you for that comment, Joe. I, I appreciate it. Thanks, Amy. Um, also, just so people know, uh, our last questioner, Joe Weiss, will be presenting on July 17th at this session. So look forward to, uh, to that one as long as all the others throughout the summer. Thanks, Joe, for the question. Um, at this time, I don't see any additional hands up or, or questions. Um, so this is, we got a couple minutes. This is your last chance if you got something you'd like to ask. I, I see we'll a question from, from I see a question from Rich about how well have institutions implemented all of these key principles. Maybe it's just to me. Yeah, I guess it's yeah, just I, to I me. Did not so see I'll, that. I'll, I'll, okay, I'll take that one. Um, so uh, uh, generally, not well. I mean, different organizations do different principles at different levels. But one of the reasons why I wrote the book. Um, is because in, on average, cybersecurity engineers maybe understand a fraction, maybe 20% of these principles and employ them. And, and so I'm trying to codify, you know, 35 years worth of experience as well as the combined experience of all of my mentors to get these written down for the purposes of, of making sure everybody understands these principles. Long-winded answer for a short question. And there's a logistics question that I think just popped up from Catherine, which is, can we receive a copy of the slides? And Jerry, I think that that's the standard, right, uh, for for the presentation. I, I think you record the you record the presentation. And I'm very happy to make the slides available. Yeah, absolutely. The uh, the sessions these sessions are being recorded. They'll be posted on the Sirius website. Uh, pretty much the same link you went to to register for this session. You'll be able to click on. Uh, Sammy's uh, presentation, and it will take you to a, a link to the site, uh, either on our site or through our YouTube channel. So the, the last thing I have, Sammy, is someone says, I have no mic to activate, but do you have any words of wisdom for moving the cultural needle off the widget mentality? Um, well, uh, my, my approach to that problem was to write a book about it. Um, I, I think, uh, but, but part of it is asking the right questions, right? I mean, by, by moving the conversation to um, what risks are you worried about? What strategic risks are you worried about? So I, I, think, um, I think it's about the questions that we ask as cyber engineers of each other and of management that will shift the focus away from widgets, like how many firewalls do we need to, what's the risk we face to mission, and how are we addressing those? And why do we think that what we're doing is effective against the kinds of attacks we're worried about? That question shifts the conversation immediately to the right thing. So I'm trying to arm you guys with the right questions to shift the conversation. Okay, well, I show a sitting at exactly two o'clock. So Sammy did a great job on your uh, time management here. Uh, this last slide we're showing up, I uh, just wanted to mention again, as we did earlier, this is um, a link at the bottom to our YouTube channel, and you'll be able to see this presentation made available there in the very near future. And also, I had mentioned our partners, uh, and they're the reason we're able to put on programs like this. So I want to thank all those partners, and if you need any other information about the program, uh, send me an email at info at .edu. So. With that, 
I guess we'll close the session. And thank you, Sammy, very much for your participation. And thanks to everyone who dialed in today.